This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And Adam Hochschild first hit my radar in 1998 with King Leopold's Ghost, which is one of the most impressive books about colonial legacy in Africa. And boy, the Belgians were not thrilled, even though they made the book a number one bestseller. In Belgium, they were not thrilled. But Adam is back with a new book called American Midnight. And before we get to American Midnight, though, I'd really like to ask you a question based on an essay you wrote in 2008, which right now feels like about a million years ago, with everything we've been through as a country recently. But do we need a license to practice history? Well, let me look for my license. Is it in my <laughs> wallet or somewhere or in the pocket? I don't seem to have one. Uh, <laughs> No, meanwhile, I don't think you need a license to practice history. I mean, the usual license for practicing history is having a PhD in the subject and mm -hmm. teaching at a university. And there are many fine historians uh, who uh, come into the writing of history that way. There are other people like Winston Churchill, George Kennan, and others who came into the writing of history by making history themselves. And then there are some of us who come from a different direction. I grew up in the world of journalism. I was a newspaper reporter and then a magazine writer for some years. I don't think you need a license. I just think you need um, to know how to honestly search out what's significant and to tell a story in a way that's accurate and has meaning. That has meaning. That, that to me is the important thing, not what your credentials are. Right. And I agree. Which brings us to American Midnight, which has a heck of a subtitle, The Great War, Violent Peace and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. And you are focused on our country's history between 1917 and 1921. And there are shocking parallels that I think a lot of folks may not be entirely aware of. So I'm going to ask you to set this up by telling us how you decided on this topic, because it takes you three to six years to write a book. So it's not like you started writing this six months ago and said, oh, here we go. Mm -hmm. It feels like you were really ahead of your time with this book. Well, not only does it take me uh, at least several years to write a book, but finding a topic that has meaning, that has significance, that has resonance today is uh, often hard for me, as mm -hmm. I think it is hard for, for many writers. Uh, I've sometimes thrashed around for a couple of years before settling on the topic of the next book. During those times, I try to keep off the streets and out of trouble by writing essays and book reviews and magazine articles. But uh, getting a topic to crystallize is, is not always easy. This one eventually did for me, though, because I have uh, I've worked in that period, 1917 to 21, before. My previous book, uh, Rebel Cinderella, was about, about an American woman who lived through that time and was actually convicted under the Espionage Act. So I got to know some of the characters uh, in, in that period. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought focusing in on these four years was an important thing to do right now, because this was the Trumpiest time of American history before Trump. It was a time when the country was filled with rage against immigrants and refugees. 
when there was a great deal of vigilante violence, people who were in some ways the predecessors of the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and so on. Uh, and it was a time when, for example, up to the very last minute, the leading Republican and Democratic candidates for president in 1920 for the nominations of their respective parties were both campaigning on promises of mass deportation mm -hmm. of undesirable people of all kinds. Furthermore, it was a time when a number of things took place that Trump would have liked to do but didn't do, wasn't able to do. Uh, you know, in 2016, his followers chanted, lock her up, lock her up about Hillary Clinton. Well, Woodrow Wilson and his administration did lock up for a year or more hundreds of Americans who were in prison solely for things that they wrote or said. Also, the Trump administration was famous for hating critical media. Well, during those four years that I'm writing about, this country had press censorship on a huge scale mm -hmm. that started with the excuse of the First World War, but continued for several years after the war was over. 75 newspapers and magazines were forced to close. Yeah, Arthur Schlesinger was not kidding when he was writing about the cycles of American history. This is only 100 years ago. Yeah. yeah. This is, in, in the grand scheme of things, this is a blink of the universe's eye. 100 years is nothing. And... I have to say, the Espionage Act was sort of always something I knew about, but I didn't realize the extent to which it was used against our fellow Americans. It's, oh. the whole thing is a little wild to me. And I know you just mentioned Rebel Cinderella, but I, part of me also thinks that this kind of relates too to another earlier book of yours, To End All Wars, A Story of Loyalty and Rebellion, 1914 to 1918, because one of the things you raise in American Midnight is this idea that patriotism was used to tamp down dissent because the powers that be were concerned that anti-war, anti-World War I dissenters would somehow disrupt the process of getting kids into the army. This, this was an interesting time all over the mm -hmm. world. The, the earlier book you just mentioned, To End All Wars, was about the First World War in Britain, where there as in the United States, there was a very strong anti-war movement, perhaps more pronounced in Britain than in the U.S., because many people at the time sensed what we know today, which is that the First World War remade the world for the worse in every conceivable way. You know, it killed uh, more than 9 million soldiers, uh, depending on how you count them, an even larger number of civilians. It left a legacy of bitterness and resentment in, in Germany that resulted in the Nazis and the Second World War. It's impossible to imagine the Second World War without the First. And a lot of people sensed this at the time, that this war was not leading to good, resisted against it. To End All Wars, which I did about a dozen years ago, focuses on the conflict within Britain between the anti-war movement there and the government. Uh, in this book, I talk about that some, but then what really surprised me as I got to know the period better was that all of these repressive measures that came into being with the excuse of the war, press censorship, locking up dissidents, encouraging vigilante violence, and so forth, the government encouraging vigilante violence, continued for several years after the war. 
Uh, so that's why I focus on the, the four years, only the first year and a half of which the United States was at war. And Woodrow Wilson, good old Woodrow Wilson, who we are much clearer now on who he is and was, um, you know, there were some moments where everyone was kind of like, that guy, really? He was a... And even when he was elected, there was this idea that he was quite the progressive, and then he started to show us who he really was. And all of that got kind of stuffed onto a shelf somewhere. <laughs> and it's only been very recently that we've been able to really grapple with his legacy. And you start early on. So, I mean, we meet him and he's playing golf. <laughs> mm -hmm. So can we talk about Wilson for a second and his legacy? Because he really does shape so much of these conversations that I think a lot of people do not know he's in many ways responsible for. Yeah. He was a very paradoxical and complicated man. He doesn't fall simply into the category of a demagogue you can hate. Right. He was much more complicated than that. And the, the combination of things that intrigues me is that, on the one hand, he was a tremendous idealist. His great passion uh, in life and throughout this period was his idea for the League of Nations, mm -hmm. where the countries of the world would come together and settle their differences instead of uh, fighting about them. And, you know, oh, nobody can argue with the idea that it's better for countries to sit down and talk than to fight. Realistically, I don't think his dream of the League of Nations with the United States sort of in it and almost dominating it would have been any more successful at stopping wars than the UN has been since 1945. But uh, nonetheless, he, he believed with a deep passion that this was the way to solve the world's problems. And in a way, it sort of killed him because when he was in bad health, in 1919, desperate to get Congress to pass this treaty that had the League of Nations as a centerpiece, when he was in bad health, he set off on an exhausting month-long uh, tour of the United States, giving several speeches a day. And giving a speech in those days meant shouting because there were no public address systems. And right. if you were trying to address, you know, 10,000 people gathered in a stadium or something, you really had to shout. And it was uh, on that trip that he suffered the first of two almost fatal strokes, the next came when he was back at the White House a week later, that really put him out of commission for the rest of his presidency. So in a way, he sacrificed his health and I'm sure shortened his life by this idealism. At the same time, he presided over the worst assault on civil liberties that's happened in the United States since the South rolled back Reconstruction after the Civil War. Hundreds of people sent to prison. There were about uh, 450 long-term prisoners, that means a year or more, in federal prisons solely for things that they wrote or said. There were at least as many in state prisons because the states passed copycat laws to the Espionage Act during this period. He encouraged vigilante violence. Uh, he encouraged discrimination against what he thought of as undesirable ethnicities, which basically mm -hmm. meant everybody who was not Anglo-Saxon as he was. He seemed to show uh, no regard for or upset by the widespread press censorship 
uh, and stuff like that that took place under his administration. Uh, in addition, and I think this part of his legacy has been very well publicized in, in recent decades, he was a Southerner and a segregationist. And what little integration of the federal workforce that had taken place under his administration was rolled back. The number of Black people working for the U.S. government declined during his administration. They uh, uh, segregated the workforce in uh, post offices and places like that where it had not been segregated before. So a very paradoxical man who uh, is certainly not one of my heroes, but who's interesting. And as I say, you can't hate him as you would a demagogue, but it's a sort of lesson to all of us that you can preside over a very repressive period without being a loudmouthed showman. Was Wilson your starting point? Because you've said in the past that you always need to know who your cast is before you really sit down to write. And obviously, you're writing and researching sort of in tandem, it feels like. Am I right about that piece? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So Wilson's sort of the cornerstone, yes, but you've got Eugene Debs and Emma Goldman and John Reed, and I know I'm missing a couple of other folks, but there's a really big cast in this book, but do you start with Woodrow Wilson? Is that how no, this book comes about? The starting point for me was the period. Got it. Why in this four years did the United States become a police state of sorts? Why did that happen? Then when once I was determined that this was the story that I basically wanted to tell, then I'm like a movie director holding auditions for my cast. Now, one of the ways you can get into my cast of characters is by leaving a very detailed wooden written record, because that's what we historians have to work from. You're not allowed to make stuff up like a novelist can. Um, so that's a prime requirement. Uh, and of course, it skews to some extent the way history is written, because the rich leave more records than the poor, men leave more records than women, white people leave more records than black, and so so on. But nonetheless, I, I think I was able to find a sort of varied and lively cast of people to tell the story through. And, you know, some of them, obviously, Wilson, who was president this whole period, had to be in the cast. And there's abundant documentation of what he did every day and really sometimes hour by hour uh, in his presidency because everybody around him wrote books, you know, presidential papers got saved and so forth. But then I wanted to show some of the facets of resistance to him. That's where the socialist leader Eugene Debs, the anarchist firebrand Emma Goldman, and other people uh, come into the story who bravely spoke out against some of the things that Wilson was doing. And there were other characters I wanted to find um, and did. The one facet of this period was the enormous expansion of intelligence operations directed against American civilians by military intelligence on one hand. The army had a huge military intelligence operation that was not operating in Europe. The British and French had all the intelligence the Allies needed about the Germans. But in the United States, a thousand people working for it. And the guy who ran that, um, Ralph Van Diemen, an army officer, was a very interesting character who had gotten his training in surveillance by 
surveilling rebels in the Philippines who were um, fighting against American rule there when the U.S. when it became the Philippines became an American colony. So he's in my cast. And then I was lucky to be able to find an undercover agent, Leo Wendell, uh-huh. who left a huge and fascinating record. Uh, happily, thanks to the National Archives, which are back in the news again <laughs> these days, the equivalent of FBI files. In those days, it was just called the Bureau of Investigation. They added federal to the name in the 1930s. All those records that undercover people uh, sent in were, were kept, you know, several million pages of them. Usually, we don't know who these folks were. But there's a historian named Charles McCormick who noticed some years ago that Leo Wendell signed the first few of his reports with his own name before switching to his code number, 836. So we know that all the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of undercover reports in those archives from 836 are really from Leo Wendell, who successfully infiltrated the Wobblies, the industrial workers of the world, the country's most militant trade union, joined all sorts of other groups as well, you know, um, was physically violent, uh, obviously at the behest of his employers, who wanted to be able to blame violence on the radicals in Pittsburgh, where, where Wendell was working. So he was, in a, in, a, in a way, the most interesting member of the cast. It was a profoundly anti-labor moment. And one of the things that sort of caught my eye early in the book, too, is when Wilson's talking about going into World War I and realizing that, you know, it would be a financial boon for large parts of American business life. And yet he had to find a way to make it sound like, well, really, it's the right thing to do. We've got to go in. We've got to help. And and sort of seeing that chess play out in Wilson's mind as he's trying to figure it out, and then to know that his he's sort of fighting almost a two pronged attack on American labor, where it's like, well, we want you to stay quiet, so we're going to use the specter of patriotism and the Espionage Act and everything to keep you well behaved, but also then we're going to spy on you and then base you know use your own behavior and everything else against you. And it's really, there are a lot of parallels to right now. Yeah. I think you have to look at it this way, that at the time the U.S. went to war in 1917, remember Europe had been, been uh, European nations had been battling each other for almost three years. The U.S. didn't join until April 1917. Uh, the myth was that we were a peaceful nation. And it was these nasty Germans whose submarines were sinking American ships that forced us to go to war. Well, the German submarines were sinking American ships because they were carrying huge quantities of munitions, you know, artillery shells, guns, uh, weapons, and so forth, to the Allies in Europe, primarily Britain and France. American business was making lots of money selling mm-hmm. this stuff to the Allies. The Germans repeatedly warned that uh, ships carrying these kinds of things sailing in international waters would be entering a war zone and would be at risk of being sunk. Uh, And finally, in in the beginning of 1917, they started sinking the ships. Uh, So that's what drew, drew the country ostensibly into the war. 
But I think Wilson had a couple of other reasons for going to war. One is he felt that the U.S. couldn't be influential in shaping the peace unless it was part of uh, fighting the war. And he had this dream of the League of Nations. There was also a very practical reason, which was that the Allies were faltering. The war in early 1917 seemed to be almost a stalemate. And Europe was, both sides in Europe were spending themselves into bankrupt bankruptcy. And if that happened, Americans who had bought British and French war bonds and Russian war bonds would never get their money back. Uh, of course, the people who bought imperial Russian bonds never did get their money back. But his ambassador in London warned that unless the United States joined the conflict, uh, Britain and France risked defaulting on these enormous debts. So that was a, a motive. But just coming back to the first thing I mentioned, I think it was a complete myth that the United States was a country at peace when right. we entered the First World War. There were several really intense conflicts going on. One of them was between business and labor, where yeah. there weren't any of the laws protecting the rights to organize labor unions, which we have today. That struggle was very violent. In 1913-14, 70 people had been killed in Colorado alone in battles over a a miners' strike there. And then when the war began, it was like pouring gasoline on smoldering embers everywhere because now business and the government could say to striking workers, you people are impeding the war effort and uh, ought to be locked up. And sometimes they were locked up. Uh, and the same kind of, you know, inflaming an existing conflict happened in the battles between blacks and whites. Uh, exacerbated by the Great Migration out of the South, which had begun at that point, and by the struggles between nativists and immigrants. You've always made it clear that you need sort of a moral and a political angle in order to choose your subject. That And, and by moral, I don't mean necessarily you standing on a hill saying, you know, passing judgment kind of thing, but more the idea that there's weight, that there's, there are consequences, that we are living with the legacy of X, Y, or Z. I mean, you've written about the Spanish Civil War as well. But when you're, when you're taking that tack, when you're, when you're looking to balance the story and the morality and, and the characters and all this, is there any room for you to be surprised? In some ways, I think uh, an author probably isn't doing his or her job if they're not surprised by something they discover. I think that's a different question than whether it's a moral issue that draws you into the story okay. to begin with. Okay. Uh, and for me, usually it is, unless I feel there's some big question at stake, you know, war, peace, social justice. It's not interesting enough to me to want to spend several years writing it. Um, I somehow can't imagine spending several years writing a book that didn't have some dimension like that. Mm -hmm. You know, a magazine piece or two, sure, right. but not a whole book. But then there's plenty of room to be surprised uh, once you go into it, once you find that somebody is a much more complicated person than you expected them to be. And I think that was the case for, for Woodrow Wilson, that mm -hmm. uh, as I Try to say he was a deeply complicated and paradoxical man, uh, not easy to paint in black and white colors. 
So was Wilson the biggest surprise or was Leo Wendell the biggest surprise? Because, I mean, when you revealed that he had given up his name, I was like, wait a minute, isn't that defeating the purpose? Aren't you supposed to stay hidden behind code names and code numbers and all of this kind of thing? And so what was that moment for you with American Midnight? I can't say that Leo Wendell was a surprise because it was mm-hmm. the work of another historian, Charles McCormick, who alerted me uh, to him. But not enough people know McCormick's uh, book. So I tried to carry it further, and I did carry it a little further. I managed to get in touch with his granddaughter and find out what she knew about him, and because she was equally fascinated uh, as I was. One of the things that sometimes happens is that you, there are things you want to know about somebody, and you can't. But if you've got some evidence, you are, I think, legitimately allowed to speculate. Uh, and in the case of Wendell, you know, in all his hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of reports to the Bureau of Investigation about the people he was spying on, radicals in Pittsburgh, you know, detailed accounts of meetings, who said what, when, what he said when he gave speeches at meetings and so on, he never makes any expressions of super patriotism. Mm-hmm. So what's driving this guy to take such pleasure and living for years a life undercover, where people knew him by another name, where he was going out drinking in the evening with uh, wobblies whom he was deceiving. And I can only conclude that uh, like other spies throughout history, and some of whom we have sort of more detail about how they really thought and felt, it was the pleasure of deception. Uh, which I think for some people, you know, is, is, is a powerful motive. You know, the idea that you're living a life which those around you don't know. Uh, you have a whole secret existence which they don't know. What does that do for you? It, it, it makes you think there's something special and unique about yourself that other people can't grasp. So I'm just guessing. But uh, that's what I would guess was his was his main motive. But doesn't it also give him power? I mean, essentially, as a historian, you're writing about power. As a journalist, you write about power. I mean, this is one of the sort of great narratives, right? You go back to Shakespeare and <laughs> we're talking about power. I, you know, I can't help but think that narrative would be a very, very different thing, especially narrative history. If we didn't have people who were chasing power on any given level, I mean, certainly not just on a world stage, but Leo Wendell had a lot to do and a lot to answer for that maybe he never did. He did. Uh, power, I'm not sure for him. I think, I think sort of the pleasure of deception was okay. his main motive. Okay. I certainly see, you know, two of the characters in the, in the book were people who were really chasing power because they were trying to run for president. One was Wilson's attorney general, A. Mitchell Palmer, who up until the last minute was the leading candidate for the Democratic nomination in uh, 1920. And you can see him becoming more and more ambitious and sort of shaping his campaign, which was all going to be about deportations of dangerous radicals, deport dangerous troublemakers by the shipload, he said. And his quest for power was fascinating to me because he was, and I quote another historian on this, a demagogue who believed his own demagoguery. 
And he was so convinced that these troublemakers he wanted to deport were, uh, were really troublemakers that he repeatedly predicted in the spring of 1920 that on May Day of 1920, the International Workers' Holiday, there was going to be a nationwide communist uprising. And as a result, uh, you know, extra police were put on duty all over the country in New York City, which was certain to be the hub of everything because there were so many dangerous people there. All three shifts of the police force were on duty, one shift on the street, the other two waiting in station houses. J.P. Morgan hired extra guards. They put the National Guard on alert everywhere. You know, there were security people posted at, you know, railway stations and ferry terminals and so on. And nothing happened. Uh, and it kind of took the air out of Palmer's presidential campaign. And in a way was a turning point that marked the beginning of the end uh, of this period. So that was a fascinating study of somebody seeking power. His rival on the Republican side, uh, who's also a character in this book, General Leonard Wood, close friend of Theodore Roosevelt, a real blood and thunder army officer who, you know, again, was promising to rid the country of troublemakers. You know, he saw his path to power as being seen putting down trouble. So he was the commander of uh, troops uh, in the Midwest, actually. And when there was a rioting in Omaha, race rioting, he put the city under martial law. And you know, there's a photograph in the book of, you know, troops uh, with a machine gun on the street in Omaha. Uh, but his campaign at the very end fell flat as well, because by that point, people felt the country didn't need a man on horseback uh, to lead it. What do you feel like was the turning point for this period? What was the thing that sort of pulled us back from the brink in 20? I think it was a couple of things. One was what I just mentioned, Palmer's prediction of a nationwide communist uprising that never happened. That actually made the press take a more skeptical look at Palmer and other people in the administration who'd been feeding them this stuff for years about dangerous subversives are everywhere. And I must say, you know, I spent a lot of time reading mainstream daily newspapers in this period. And the mainstream daily newspapers were on the whole pretty terrible. They just repeated whatever the government told them. A problem we sometimes still have with the press today, but I think the best of our media today is much more critical. So when this predicted communist uprising didn't happen, the press, I think, felt they had been had to some degree. And they, you know, published the critical cartoons of Palmer. They were more skeptical about these warnings. Also, social tensions eased uh, because the 1919, which had been the stormiest year in, in some ways, there had been huge inflation during the war. Wages often didn't keep up with it. Uh, returning veterans were uh, desperately competing for jobs, and the jobs weren't there because the factories making tanks and guns and warplanes and so on had closed down. And that exacerbated things greatly. By 1920-21, the economy started to pick up, and people realized 
the Russian Revolution was not going to spread to the United States, which had been a fear uh, earlier on. I think another reason things calmed down is that the Wilson administration essentially had shattered the left. Um, even the American Federation of Labor, the very mainstream wing of the labor movement, lost a million members during this period. All kinds of anti-labor laws went into effect. Uh, the Wobblies were crushed. The Socialist Party was crushed. You know, the socialism in the United States was never as powerful a force as it was in uh, most of Europe. But Eugene Debs had won 6% of the popular vote for president at one point. You know, the Wilson administration saw him as a threat, put him in prison, many other leaders as well from his party. So in a way, we got past this period at the expense of a good portion of the American political spectrum being crushed. And it didn't really come back to life until the 1930s. And that's post Great Depression that you're referring to yeah. when, when labor starts to come back, because yeah. obviously there is that moment where nothing is is working particularly well for us. But you have been writing books for quite a long time. You were a practicing journalist before you were writing books. Have we ever managed to actually learn anything from our history? <laughs> Sometimes you wonder. <laughs> I do. I really wonder. do. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you really wonder, you know, and, and you see people repeating the same errors over and over again. I mean, today, uh, you know, we have this positively enormous national intelligence uh, apparatus, which failed to predict the collapse of the Soviet Union. They predicted the collapse of Ukraine when uh, Russia invaded some months ago. That didn't happen. Uh, they've missed an awful lot of stuff, but we still keep putting huge amounts of money into that operation. I hope that one way that we have improved and learned something from the history is something I briefly mentioned earlier, that I think the, the best of the mass media have become more critical than they were. Uh, there is always a tendency for journalists and government officials to become close friends you know, to become sort of part of an establishment together. And obviously that still happens sometimes. But I think, you know, you look at the, the best media we have, papers like the New York Times and the Washington Post and so on, for all their faults, they do practice a good deal of investigative journalism. And I think they're more skeptical of things that government officials and business leaders tell them than they were 100 years ago. And that to me is a good development. I do think we've moved the needle to a certain extent, but access journalism is a concern. I think that, you know, there's an art, and you know this, you've been a journalist, there's an art to the write around that I think, you know, people like Patrick Radden Keefe, um, you know, Gay Talese legendarily did it with that Frank Sinatra profile. And, you know, they're, they're sort of the first two people that come to mind. But there's an idea that I think, you know, sometimes you have to get the information out into the world. But then again, I sort of came out into the world in in the shadow of Watergate and Woodward and Bernstein. And, you know, there was a moment where it was like, oh, and, you know, certainly um, 
the spotlight story that came out of the Boston Globe. Like there is a lot that journalism has been able to do. Um, I just like to see them push a little harder sometimes. Yeah, Woodward and Bernstein were were an important moment. You know, two investigative journalists uh, brought down a, a president, and I think that encouraged a lot of us to think it could happen again. Uh, we then got into a strange moment with the Trump presidency, though, where there was all kinds of investigative journalism about him, exposing all kinds of horrible things he'd done. And it has not had the effect on his devoted and fanatical followers that we would wish it to have. Uh, in a way, the the bar is a lot higher for the <laughs> amount of what you have to do to finally get people not to trust you than it used to be, at least when you have that kind of demagogic appeal. And Trump himself said, you know, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and they would still support me. That makes it harder to mm -hmm. be a journalist today, I think. On so many fronts. I mean, one of the things you talk about, too, is the fact that people were self-censoring for fear of the Espionage Act and, and fear of being convicted for speaking the truth. Absolutely, because the Espionage Act, which incidentally is still in, a, in force, but it has been modified a great deal, but it's right. still in force. And uh, it's the law under which Trump may get in trouble under mm. those classified documents, because of right. those classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. But it was a very harsh law that essentially allowed the government to jail people for speaking or writing things which were judged to be unpatriotic in a country at war. And that was the law Debs was sent to jail under. That was the law Emma Goldman was sent to jail under. Uh, another character in the book, Kate Richards O'Hare, Socialist Party activist, also sent to jail under that law, found herself in the very next cell to Emma Goldman. And the two women became close friends and each recorded their impressions of the other. And of course, when you're doing character-based history and two of your characters know each other and write about each other. It's a writer's dream. Uh, but it was the Espionage Act that put them all behind bars and many, many other people as well. In one case, which I go into in the book, three middle-aged men in a Kentucky cobbler's shop were talking and Unknown to them, their conversations were being eavesdropped on by a microphone planted by a local vigilante group. They were sent to a federal prison because their conversation was judged to be pro-German. Uh, I mean, it's amazing. And a, a lot of these people convicted under the Espionage Act during the war, like those three guys in Kentucky, were sent to jail or were still in jail a couple of years after the war ended. This is what, your 11th? book? Do I have that yes. right? Okay. So your 11th book, you find stories that interest you and you chase them and then we get a great book out of it. That's sort of how it seems to me. But what do you, as Adam Hawk's child, what do you get from writing these books? Well, there's a great deal of satisfaction in telling a story that means something to people, that, that where you can see it resonating with people's lives. I mean, I'll give you one example of it. Um, uh, I do like to hop around between countries and centuries. It makes it more interesting for me than if I specialized in one particular time and place. 
And one of the books I did, Bury the Chains, was a history of the British anti-slavery movement that began in the 1780s. And uh, it took them nearly 50 years before they finally succeeded in getting all the British Empire's slaves freed, which happened, incidentally, 25 years before the slaves were freed here in the United States. Fascinating story with some wonderful, inspiring characters in it. Well, one of the things that happened in that in the wake of that book was this. You often learn who's reading a book by who invites you to come talk about it. <laughs> you know, for a few years after the book was published, all the invitations I got were from African history courses, race relations courses and studies, you know, black studies classes and so forth. The last, I think, five invitations that I've gotten to talk about the subject matter in that book have all come from groups working to stop global warming. Why? Because they saw a group of people almost 250 years ago who changed the way the world thought about something that almost everybody took for granted. And they're fascinated by the parallels. I wish I could say that occurred to me at the time I was writing the book. It didn't, but I'm delighted when people find a parallel like that. Um, sometimes the effect of the story, you know, is on people who have some connection to the patch of history I was writing about. Uh, my Spanish Civil War book, this was about American volunteers right. who fought in the Spanish Civil War, uh, which was in many ways the first battle of World War II, mm -hmm. uh, you know, first attempt to, to roll back fascist takeover in Europe. And every time I've talked about that book in a bookstore or library or something, somebody always comes up afterwards and says, my father was in Spain or my great uncle was in Spain. One fellow came up, man about 70 or so, and he said, my father fought as an American volunteer in Spain. And we didn't find out until after he died because uh, the FBI prosecuted or pursued or harassed all those American veterans of the Spanish Civil War. Um, many of them belonged to the Communist Party, but it went after a lot of the ones who didn't belong to the Communist Party as well. And so this man's father had thought it was best just not to let his family know that he'd been there. So, you know, I meet people who are on interesting journeys of exploration about their family members in the the pieces of history that uh, I I've written about, and and that's fun and interesting too. Yeah, you know, something I learned about you as I was researching for this episode is that you read a lot of fiction for pleasure, and I'm not sure what I thought you were reading. I'm not sure I thought you had time to read for pleasure because I mean it takes you a while to create these books. But can we talk about some of your favorite novelists and and some of the books that you hold close? Sure. Well, I think I would put Tolstoy at the top of the list. I read War and Peace uh, the summer before this past summer for the fourth time in my life. And uh, I do think he's at the, at the very top. Uh, I love Chekhov as well, of the Russians. I've never resonated with Dostoevsky for some reason, although I've made a couple of tries. Hemingway and Fitzgerald are still yep. important figures for me. And it was 
fun to write about Hemingway in the Spanish Civil War, where he's very much a character. Uh, Contemporary novels that I've enjoyed a great deal. Um, One of them is Ben Fountain's uh, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. I see you nodding so obviously familiar with it. Oh, that book is really good. Spectacular novel. Really good. All taking place within 20 minutes of a halftime show of the Dallas Cowboys uh, uh, football game. Uh, Another uh, even more recent novel that I just finished reading for the second time is Daniel Mason's The Winter Soldier. Oh, The Piano Tuner, his follow-up book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, the I, Piano I, Tuner was the first book. Yep, yeah, uh, yeah, which I read and loved. I have not yet read The Winter Soldier, but I will move it up uh, higher than the listener. You have a treat in store oh, if good. you uh, read The Winter Soldier, which I thought mm-hmm. beautiful, lyrical, uh, what I would give mm-hmm. to be able to write paragraphs of description. Mm-hmm. Uh, like his. It was also deeply fascinating to me because it's set in a time and place I know something about, which is the Eastern Front and the First World War, the battles in the Carpathian Mountains mm-hmm. uh, between Russia on one side and uh, Austria-Hungary on the other, a sort of fascinating clash between these two decrepit empires, both right. of which, you know, collapsed <laughs> before the war was over. Yep. Uh, as it happened, I knew something about that because an uncle of mine by marriage, whom I wrote about in my first book, Half the Way Home, fought in the Russian army in exactly the same territory. Uh, even some of the towns that Mason names, my uncle mentions in his his memoir. So, but you know that aside, it's still a, a an absolutely a beautiful, beautiful novel. Have you figured out what your next book is going to be? I haven't. I'm in one of those periods <laughs> where sometimes I get stuck, you yeah. know, for as long as a couple of years because mm-hmm. to write a book in the way I do that involves, you know, a, a lot of research, mm-hmm. as we talked about, takes anywhere from three to six years, or at least that's been my normal experience. And you have to really be obsessed and fascinated by right. something to want right. to spend six or eight hours a day on it for several years. The problem is that 95% of the things that obsess and fascinate me do so because somebody wrote a very good book on the subject. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, how to get around that and find a pathway into the subject that wasn't taken by someone else, uh, that's always a difficult thing. What do you hope readers will take away from American Midnight? A sense that democracy in this country is something fragile, Mm -hmm. that it can be easily threatened or shattered by unpredicted events. Uh, In the period that I wrote about in American Midnight, uh, those events, of course, were the U.S. entering the First World War, and the Russian Revolution, both of which provided an excuse for a huge crackdown on civil liberties here. We can't predict what the threatening events will be in the years ahead. Uh, We can predict some of the stresses that this country is going to be under all over the world, and this is affecting Europe as well. There's going to be a migration away from the equatorial regions of the world, which are going to become more and more uninhabitable 
um, because of global warming. That puts stress on the countries where these folks are trying to get to. And you can see the effects and the rise of right-wing politics in uh, countries all over Europe. That's one stress we're going to be under. Who knows what else? You know, nobody predicted the COVID epidemic, but it rapidly became thing something that people started fighting over here. Where the additional sources of stress are going to come, I don't know, but they will come and we have to be prepared for it, recognize the signs of the system being under stress and fight to preserve those basic rights and freedoms. Do you think we can? I sure hope so. I'll know a little better after the next election happens, but uh, especially the 2024 election, but I'm sure hoping. That seems like a really good note to end on. So Adam Hochschild, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. American Midnight is out now, and I do hope people will go looking for that backlist too, because it's pretty great. Well, thank you, Miwa. It's a real pleasure to get to talk talk with you about this new book. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.